welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Things are a little quieter in my section of Minneapolis now. The constant helicopters have stopped. There's no longer the same amount of smoke in the air. And while there are still a lot of sirens, more than normal, they're not nearly as many as they were over last weekend or even one week ago. And from where I sit in my office, in my home, next to the lake, it could be very easy to go on as if life was normal. And that is privilege. It is white privilege that I have the option to pretend that life is normal or not. The other night, my nine-year-old son asked me, we're not racist, are we, mama? And it's such a, you know, it should be a super easy, straightforward question just to say, no, no, not us, not us, my love. No, of course not us. But the reality is that while not overtly in action, racist, we live in and have benefited from a society that is, that is racist. And our participation in that system is something that we have to tell the truth about and actively stop. So I thought in the podcast today, I might tell a couple of stories about my own encounters with white privilege, including one about the Minneapolis Police Department that happened just a few weeks before George Floyd was killed. And then in the second half of the podcast, I'd like to share a few thoughts that um, I think we as entrepreneurs may be able to actively engage in helping repair a society that has in some ways thrived because of racism and discrimination. Some ways that we can be more mindful of our own spheres of influence and how we can not only say, hey, I'm not part of the problem, but I'm actively fighting to reverse the problem. So a few weeks into the coronavirus epidemic, so the end of last March, the police were called to our home. And um, they were called by our, our daughter's birth mother, who was upset at me and wanted to, I think, probably manipulate and intimidate me by saying, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to call the police and have them go to your house. And I'm not one to be easily intimidated. So I basically said, go right ahead. And she did. And the police arrived. And I had been over at the lake with our youngest son. So I was walking back to my home wearing galoshes, essentially, and carrying a Frisbee and a net for catching, catching tadpoles. So my son and I walk over and I see the police have pulled up in front of our home. And I said, are you looking for me? Are you looking for Sherry? And they said, well, yes, in fact, we are. And we have had this report that, you know, this child that you've, you're taking care of, this, our, our daughter who we are guardians of, we're supposed to do a well child check for her. And I said, no problem. Let me go get her. I will show you the guardianship paperwork and, you know, we'll get you on your way. And they, these two officers kind of looked at me and said, you know, we've got this sort of strange call from this woman. And I said, yes, that's, that's Ashley. That's her birth mother. And, you know, things have been a little strange lately. And 
just kind of explain the situation. And they said, okay, well, everything's fine here. We're, we're going to go. And I said, do you want to see, you want to see the kiddo? You want to like put eyes on her and make sure she's okay. And they said, no, we're, we're good. We're fine. And they left and, you know, it was stressful. It's not ever really a fun thing to have an encounter with law enforcement in which you're you know, potentially on the receiving end of trouble. But I am just so astounded by how differently that interaction could have gone had I looked different or we've been in a different part of town or, you know, a number of things. But the fact that I was calm and interactive and confident in my interactions with these officers, I think is one piece of the puzzle. I didn't have any reason to fear them. I didn't have any reason to suspect that they would unjustly accuse me of mistreating a child or unjustly or, you know, I just, I didn't have any fear. And so I was able to interact with them in a very kind of adult to adult matter of fact way. And that is because all of my experiences with law enforcement in the U.S. at least have been fair from where I stood. They've been fair to me. And I think they assessed, they assessed me and they looked at my home and they thought, okay, you're an upper middle class Caucasian woman who seems to have nothing to hide. So we're going to make the assessment that there's no kiddo in danger here and we're going to go on our way. And in some ways I, I just kind of wish that they'd at least looked at the paperwork and, and met with the kiddo and checked it out and make sure it was okay because they just trusted me based on how I looked and where I lived and on, you know, 20 sentences exchanged between us. And I'm grateful for that because it works to my advantage and it didn't inconvenience my family and it didn't scare my children and it wasn't deeply disruptive. But I also inherently recognize the bias in their assessment that because of how I look and where I live and how I acted, everything checked out okay. And I think that story for me reflects the challenge of how to dismantle white privilege as a white person, right? I could have insisted, oh no, you need to do a more thorough investigation. But how, how odd is that? How awkward is that? It, it directly works against my own self-interest. It directly works against what is easy for all of us. But I'm kind of guessing the protocol probably wasn't followed that there was a well-child visit in which they never laid eyes on the child. And so the insistence that we work to reverse a bias that benefits us is so tricky to navigate, but one that we must do. I think that those are the conversations that must be had. And in, in a way, I wish that I would have said to the officers, no, I want you to look at my paperwork and I want you to assess the kiddo because I want it all documented that you did everything you were supposed to do in this case or to respond appropriately to this call in a way saying, don't take my word for it because of how I look and where I live, but go all the steps, do the full workup because maybe that's what's right to ensure that a kiddo is well cared for. Another story in which my family and I have really, really benefited from white privilege has to do with our oldest kiddo, who if you have been someone who's, who's met our son at, at MicroConf or some other place, he's a pretty extraordinary person, very, very high IQ, very tricky emotion regulation, some autism features, 
And I say this about him because his experiences of school as a young kid in particular were really tricky. And he would get absolutely flustered and perseverative and in some ways triggered and act in ways that were sometimes scary and threatening to other people around him. But the fact is that his struggles meant that the school staff really encouraged us to have a full assessment done, a private assessment from a neuropsychologist, from a developmental pediatrician to try to figure out what was going on with him. They encouraged us to figure out testing for IQ, for advancement, for things like autism. He didn't really get punished and he was never flagged as a bad kid or a problem kid or a threatening kid. And I feel 100% sure that if he looked different or had parents who looked different, that he would have quickly been on a trajectory toward detention, detention, suspension, expulsion. I think he quickly would have gotten the bad kid behavior problem label. And now that he is a teenager, he goes to school at a school where it's essentially this extraordinary charter school that is reclaiming all of those really high IQ brown kids and black kids that got mislabeled as behavior problems or got misidentified as ADD, antisocial, give them medicine, send them to juvie, send them here, send them there, when in fact, they're really smart children who were not doing well within the structures and confines of traditional school. And I think for the entrepreneurs I work with, I hear that story so often. I hear, hey, I was a really bright kid, but school didn't really work for me. I struggled. I didn't really get along. Maybe I dropped out. Maybe I did this. Maybe I did that. But I think the difference is that not being able to toe the line and sit still and go through all the rigmarole at school when you're a brown kid or a black kid and you're seven years old has a very different life trajectory than it had for my son, primarily because the adults that were on staff at that school identified him as a kid who needed different help and support, not as a kid who was a behavior problem. So rather than fear and judgment, my child was offered help and support and understanding. And that is just not the same script for all children who would exhibit the exact same behaviors in the exact same context. So there's no doubt in my mind that that he and that our family more broadly has benefited from white privilege in that way. And the reason that I tell this story is because I think in entrepreneurship, in technology specifically, there's often this question of like, why isn't this a more diverse crew of successful entrepreneurs? Why aren't there more people of color who are thriving in entrepreneurship? And I think one of the major, major contributors, and this isn't just what I think, there's a significant amount of data to support this hypothesis is that this problem starts when children are very, very young. So if we want to have more diverse voices as leaders in the entrepreneurship world, one of the most practical best investments that we can make is in kids, in models of education that start from the very beginning to eliminate fear, to eliminate labels, to eliminate this incorrect threat assessment 
the same kind of incorrect threat assessment that has been deadly to so many people of color. Obviously, the situation is a mess, and my own beloved city of Minneapolis is in chaos and deep pain, and I don't presume to be someone who has any great insight into how to fix that. But I do know that these scripts start so early, and one of the most important things that we can do as people at this place and at this time is to, first of all, tell the truth about our own privilege, whether it's white privilege, wealth privilege, address privilege, whatever form it's come in, to tell the truth and to have some humility about the ways that the things that we've accomplished and been able to do are in some ways based on assumptions that other people have made about us that may or may not have been based in any reality beyond their projected ideas about who we are based on how we look and where we live. So telling the truth about our own privilege, talking about those stories, talking about it within our families, I think helps us to shed those blinders and be a little bit more humble and a little bit more open to listening and perhaps in some ways hold less tightly to the things that we believe are rightfully ours have a little bit more humility about the ways in which our success as entrepreneurs is built on the backs of other people. Secondly, I think a really important practical action is to really actively talk with our children and with any children that we have access to about these some of these scripts and helping to turn this generational tide by raising a generation of kids who are really attuned to injustice and really attuned to the ways in which passivity perpetuates a status quo that is dangerous and toxic. And thirdly, I think the extent to which we can actively participate in educational systems, early intervention, early childhood systems that help to rearrange and eliminate the preschool to prison pipeline. Being educated, being aware, knowing the stories in your community, knowing the organizations and agencies in your community that are actively working to protect all citizens and promote dignity for all lives. You know, I know that the protests and riots and the whole conversation around that can be very catalytic. And whether you march in the streets or not, no matter what your background, I think there's no question that change is coming a long, long overdue change is coming in the United States of America. And I think we all have the burden and the invitation to make sure that the inner recesses of our hearts and minds are ready for that change, that it's time to do our own reflection around our own biases and our own advantages. And you don't have to put it on Facebook and you don't have to proclaim it to the world, but do your own inner housekeeping so that you are ready to recognize a wrong when it's happening around you so that you are ready to stand up for someone who needs you to stand up for them so that you are ready to pursue or be part of reconciliation, justice, peace, because those things have already taken place within your own heart, within your own mind. It's inner work and it's outer work and it's ongoing work. And I want you to hear, I by no means presume to have figured this out, but I am working to notice within myself and to help my children notice within themselves and to actively participate and contribute in every way that I can. Don't stop listening.
Don't stop being present to it. Even though for many of you, for many of us, it's really easy to go on with life as normal, that we have the choice to care or not care. And that's probably the biggest problem. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.